change-up pitch in the verse that we don't normally sing in it as well. That was cool. Um, if you've got a Bible, and if you don't have one with you, there's one in the pew in front of you there. Uh, open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, we're starting a new su- sub-series in 1 Corinthians. Cha- it'll cover chapters 8 to 10 called uh, The Limits of Freedom and the Demands of Love. And this morning I'm going to do all of chapter 8, but that won't be as daunting as it may sound. Um, so the page number is 1780, if I didn't say already, in First Corinthians. Thanks, Tony. First Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to read the whole thing. <clears throat> now, about food sacrificed to idols— We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still accustomed, so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple— Won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? And so this weak brother, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brother in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. If you do hear that that sound, you're not getting old. Everybody who can hear hears that, and I think John is going to go use his skills to attempt to see what could be done about it. And I'm going to pretend it's not there. Um, One of the things that this passage demonstrates is that true theology can lead to bad spirituality. That's one of the things that's very clear in this passage, is that true—you can have—your theology can be right. You can believe in true theology, and it can lead to bad spirituality right? One of the things that's, that's particularly common in our culture is to believe that, um, that religious faith makes people ignorant, enslaved, and servile. You get that all the time, um, and, and, and people really think that. They think that being a Christian will make you dumber, and being a Christian will make you enslaved, all kinds of silly rules and those sorts of things. And, um, and no doubt that, that's, that religion can do that. There's no question about that. And there's no question when you take the gospel out of Christianity, you get that. There's lots of people who have professed Christian faith, but have really believed in a sort of moralistic deism that that has very little of biblical Christ in it, 
And that, you see that. They, they, they close their minds in, and they, they get more servile, and they make up all kinds of rules that aren't in the Bible, and that feels spiritual to them, and they feel good about themselves, and that's what happens. There's no question that that happens sometimes. Um, but one, one of the things that's interesting about 1 Corinthians is if you're paying any attention to all, any attention at all to what the discussion that's actually happening in this book, the problem is not too little freedom. And the problem is not that anybody's against knowledge. I mean, if, if you, if, the, if 1 Corinthians were the only book in the Bible, that's all you got from, from God in terms of revealed Scripture, and you were to read that, and you were not to have any other experience of Christianity anywhere at all, you would get the idea that if you were going to fault Christianity for something, it would be giving people too much knowledge and too much liberty and too much freedom. That's what you'd think, because that's the problem in 1 Corinthians. That's the problem everywhere. This book testifies inadvertently to the fact that the real problem with Christianity is not that it's too constraining, but that it's apparently for these people not constraining enough. They're going buck nuts with everything they think they know and the freedom they think they have. The problem in Corinth is not oppression. It's chaos. And the problem is apparently nothing can be done. Um, the, the, and the problem is not, um, is not tyranny. It's not the tyranny of the gospel. It's the anarchy of the people, which is its own kind of tyranny. Freedom and knowledge are suffering, and they're suffering at the hands of knowledge and freedom. And that's the problem. So what do you do? What do you do when somebody believes in—when a group of people believe in Jesus— and the problem it creates is not too many rules, but the problem that creates is that knowledge and liberty and freedom that the gospel gives is actually producing a destructive chaos rather than a growing and vibrant community. What do you do? And it's important, even though in this passage it specifically relates to whether or not you're going to eat in a pagan idol's temple, which is probably not on your way home from work. But, but, the, but the, the issue here is what affects— does true spiritual knowledge have on how we relate to each other and how we live out our lives? And what's going on, what's going wrong with these folks is what normally goes wrong with human knowledge. It's what normally goes wrong. It's what, it's what happens when humans get knowledge. This is just one episode in that long, long story of what goes wrong with us when we know things. And the, the universal cause of free and enlightened peoples descending into this kind of chaos is universal, and it is a lack of love, and it is at the presence of selfish pride, and what that does to real knowledge. And in that sense, it's really important to recognize that Christianity has never been anti-knowledge, and isn't to this day. But Christianity doesn't have stars in its eyes about knowledge. It's not starstruck about any kind of learning. And recognize the kind of knowledge that's creating a problem here. The, the, this, the, 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 the knowledge that's creating a problem in this passage is not science. It's not, it's not politics. It's not whatever. It's not—no, it's the, the gospel is the knowledge problem, right? The, the, pro, the knowledge that is creating the problem here is the fact that these people know that Jesus has come to set us free from sin and death, and those for whom Christ has set free, they're free indeed. That's the problem. There's no, that's, that's the knowledge that's so bad. 
right? And so what you've got to realize is that when Paul comes in here and says, whoa, 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 we need to talk about this knowledge stuff. It, the problem is not the knowledge. The problem is what happens when knowledge reacts with a human person. The problem is the subjective thing that happens in us as a species when we get knowledge. That's the problem. Even when it's the purest and best form of knowledge. And if that's true of the knowledge of the gospel, it's true of every other kind of knowledge all the more, including science, technology, political, economic, sociological, and psychological knowledge. You see? And so, here, and so here's, the, here's the thing. When you realize knowledge is creating a problem because of freedom, what do you do? What do you do when freedom, because of knowledge, is creating a problem? People are, people are too chaotically free. The default response of most human communities is to make laws. Right? If it's governments, they make laws. If it's schools, they make rules. It's all the same thing. It's, it's introducing a law. People's be- we control people's behavior by external stimuli. We put into place things that—and now listen, that, that is practically works to a certain extent in controlling people's behavior, and there are some human institutions for whom that action is perfectly legitimate. We want our government to have some laws. We might argue about what things can be regulated and what things can't or shouldn't be regulated. That's a discussion for the capital. But one of the things the gospel makes very, very clear— Oh, that's so nice. Um, One of the things that the gospel makes very, very clear is that that is not the way we do this in Christianity. And therefore, to some extent— the church. God has not endeavored—it's just a—it's a different beef now, isn't it? It's like a new one. God has has not endeavored to fix our freedom problem with a new law. You've got to get that point from the New Testament. New Testament says in a number of places that we are free from the law, not so that we can have a new law. We are free from the law because Jesus— is supposed to be teaching us how to live as free men and women so that we can be the kind of men and women who don't need a law. I mean, think about it. Is heaven going to be the kind of place that is heavily regulated? No, I don't think there's going to be any laws in heaven because we will be a kind of people there that need no laws. We're going, to be, we're going to be governed by a fully regenerate, fully regenerate, redeemed nature that, is, where, that has perfectly calibrated conscience and properly set morals and values. And so every decision we will make, we will make happily, and every decision we will make will be good. And in that context, what use is there for laws except for as something you could put in a historical museum and people could go look at it for the days in which laws were needed? Now, therefore, when it comes to Christian life and Christian faith, this problem of, the, of what do we do with the fact that the gospel gives us an enormous amount of freedom and doesn't give us a new law, what are we going to do with that? How do, you, how do you deal with the fact that in Christ, 
the Old Testament law is put away, you are told to go out and live with and for Jesus, there are some guidelines given that carry over from the old law in that they, they represent God's moral nature, and they give us hints to point us in the right directions for the roads where we really need to make some U-turns. But for the most part, most of our life is not directly governed by spiritual laws. The New Testament gives some directives, but much fewer than the Old Testament. So what are we going to do? And, and the answer isn't a new law. You see, the, the, the gospel is designed to set us free and teach us how to live as free people. That's not—that is a lot harder. I mean, you, you want an easy religion. You need to go find some fundamentalists or something, or some people that the, the only rule is that there are no rules. You need to go out to the extremes somewhere because you are not going to find easy in the gospel. The gospel is not easy. The gospel says you're just going to have to live free and well. And therefore, the church is a place where we learn how to live free well. There's two things in this passage I want to look at. The first is um, that love, this dictate, if you, if you think you know something, you don't know as you need to know because you, you need to know by means of love. And one of the things this passage makes very clear is that love is loving to knowledge. Love is loving to knowledge. They are very compatible. They're a good match. They can marry each other. They're very compatible. They passed the pre-marriage counseling test. Okay? And secondly, that love makes our knowledge more humble and wise, which is exactly what we need. Okay, so let's go through those two. The first is love is loving to knowledge. It says in 8, it says in 8, 1 and 2 this, We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know it as he ought to know. Now, it's very easy to look at that as a shot at knowledge, right? To say, in fact, I've experienced this. When I was a college student and I was going to a secular university and we didn't have any kind of staff workers ministering to us as college students, and I was going to a church that, you know, wasn't very intellectual, and— um, I was struggling with all these. I would, you know, all my professors were sort of saying stuff that was really difficult, and I was trying to put things together. Some of it was just knowledge, modern knowledge I needed to put together with my faith, which is totally good. And some of it was really acidic attacks and disdain for Christian faith. And I'm reading these, and, and, I, and I, I, was, I was coming to people, and I was like, can I get some help? Is there anybody who's been through this that can help me? And what I was told was, look, look Nick, you just, you don't want to be too intellectual about religion or, or Christian faith. God doesn't want that. It's spiritual, and you know, and then they quoted this verse, you know, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Meaning not, I've noticed that you're not very loving. Meaning, put the books away, and let's just sing some more songs, right? I mean, that was, that was the idea. Not, not, let's sing some songs and read some books, right? It was, let's just, oh, let's just, it's okay to just be. And, and I couldn't, accept, it was very difficult, and I thought, that can't be what that verse means, Really? And you, you'd know that if you just read the next verses. That's why you ought to go to the inductive Bible study adult Bible fellowships, right? Because if you just read the next verses, what does it say? 
So then, okay, so he's like, okay, I just told you about the importance of the relationship between knowledge and love. So now he's going to work it out in an example. So then, right? Just gave you the principle. Now we're going to work it out in an example. About eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there's no God but one. You see what the first thing he does is? He's going to attack knowledge. What's the first thing he does? He affirms it. He affirms knowledge. He says, what you think you know, you do know. You do know. One of the great things about the gospel is it does tell you real things about God, things you can bank on, things you can trust in, things you can, you can shape your conscience and your emotional life and your intellectual life around, things that you can walk with and walk towards. It, it, he's like, it really is true that idols are nothing. The reason you think you—I know the reason you think you can eat in an idol's temple is because the idol is nothing. And I'm not here to attack that. You're right. It is just a piece of wood. It is just a piece of stone. It is nothing in the world. And therefore, it has no ability to do something to the food. That's totally true, right? And he says, even though there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, he's saying, yeah, yeah, there's lots of God's small g, meaning angelic and demonic beings, and there's lots of God's small g in the world. There's lots of little things people call gods, and there's lots of lords. That is, people with authority. There's lots of authorities in heaven and in hell, and there's lots of authorities here on earth. That's true, but what we know is the way for us, yet for us, meaning in the way we conduct ourselves, yes, all those authorities and all those little g gods and lords exist, but for us, how do we conduct ourselves? There's one God. There's the Father from whom all things came and for whom they live, we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. That would, it would be really fun to take 45 minutes and talk about the theology that comes from the use of prepositions in that phrase. And you should go do that in one of the Abedal Bible fellowships. But we're not going to do that right now. The point of this is, it is an affirmation of knowledge. Knowledge is good. You can know it. And here's why this is important. There are a lot of people that believe the way you fix freedom problems or the way you fix knowledge problems, people who think they know something about God and they act in terrible ways about it, the way to fix that is you relativize knowledge. Well, you don't really know anything. How, you can't really know that. You can't really know that there's only one God. There might be lots of gods, and there might be— or the face of God may express itself in 57 different ways. And You can't know any of this stuff, and therefore, you can't be so sure about how you act. Therefore, that can blunt the aggressiveness of your action. We can all get along. And that is a very strong temptation, and it is the—and and that is the fastest-growing religion in America, right? You say whatever you want about— whatever else. The fastest growing religion in America for 30 years at least has been that one. You can't know as much as you think you can know. Therefore, we'll have a belief about God that is definite enough to believe that God is going to say we're fantastic and take us to heaven, but yet vague enough to make sure we can do whatever we want. It's a universal human desire in relationship to God. We want affirmation, but we still want to be our own gods. And, and listen, there are lots of ways we do that. There's lots of ways we do that. There's lots of parts of the Bible we want to ignore. There's lots of parts that we want to talk about more. It's not like it's those, those whatever out there. Those, those, right? It's everybody. Every human being's like that. It's, it's growing. That religion is growing in the evangelical church, it's grow, but it's growing everywhere. And that's not how Paul handles this. He's not going to give us a new law, right? That's not what Jesus wants. And he's not going to relativize our knowledge and say, you can be free, do whatever you want, but just don't be so sure of yourself, and then everybody will be nicer and we'll all get along. No, we won't all get along, because we're all going to do whatever we feel like doing, because there's no God telling us what to do, and we're going to hurt each other dramatically, and the only thing we're not going to be able to do is to say that. 
What you did hurt her. And I know it because here's what God says about the truth. It's all just going to make us all little gods do whatever we want. Theological relativism cannot help but bring about moral relativism. I'm sorry, but it's just—it's deductive logic. But right after he affirms how amazingly good knowledge is and that love wishes to affirm knowledge's truth, he turns around and he, he says, what you also need to realize is that knowledge reacts predictably with the human personality. It's like a chemical reaction. There are certain elements that when you put them together, you know what's going to happen. There's going to be a reaction. If I was a good communicator, I'd have something that I would make blow up on the stage. Okay? So just imagine. Okay? It's, it's a very predictable reaction. When human being, when knowledge comes into a human being, something very predictable happens. Now, it is, it is very intuitive to think that when knowledge increases, you get a benefit right? And you can just call this, culturally speaking, the, the education fallacy. If things are bad among any group of people, if we increase the level of education, things will get better, right? Is that true or false? Oh, it depends, doesn't it? It depends. Uh, if, you, if we educate people, they may act less ignorantly. They can act smarter, and that may cause their, their lives in some ways to get better, right? That really can't happen. Education is a wonderful benefit, right? Are we pro—should Christians be pro-education? Well, we have been for 2,000 years. Christians have been on the leading edge of education and investigation for 2,000 years. God makes everything interesting. Everything relates to God, and God relates to everything. A Christian should par excellence be one of the most universally curious and interested people in the, in the, that there can possibly be. Everything relates to God, and we love God. But acting smarter isn't acting better. And what is smart can be very morally relative. The smart thing for you can really hurt lots of other people, right? Like, for example, in 2003, you could have done the smart thing for you and created a new investment type at Wall Street that you could get lots of other people to invest billions in so that your company could make a lot of money on that, right? And that was really smart for you. It really was really smart for you. There's no law against it. You're not going to go to jail. Yeah, it may economically implode because it has to, because that's what bubbles do, but, right? But it's terrible for everybody else. Everybody else. Millions of people. But it was smart from a certain perspective. And what can be done on macrocosms that make CNN, we do in microcosms all the time. Little things that are smart for us, bad for the community. Bad for everybody else. Not loving, but smart. And you see, that's one of the, the difficulties, because even though knowledge can make us smarter, which can make us act more efficiently, one of the things we also need to recognize is that knowledge is power, and power is superiority. Whenever we learn stuff, knowledge really is power. People say, knowledge is power. Therefore, get a better education. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. Knowledge is power, and you should get a better education. But, but, power is intoxicating, and power is superiority, and that does something to the human heart and the human soul, and it is not pretty. It is not pretty. 
It has an intoxicating effect, and it has an insulating and isolating effect, and that leads us to conclude things that are drastically unloving, not in keeping with real knowledge, so that our knowledge becomes foolishness. And that's one of the things that Paul's talking about in Romans 1 when he says, people who thought they were wise became fools. Why? Was it because they weren't smart? No, it wasn't because they weren't smart. It's because their knowledge had a chemical reaction with their sinful nature, and that produced an an intoxicating effect that isolated them from other things, that led them to narrow, shallow conclusions that drove them in sinful directions when they thought they were so smart, and they act very foolishly. And, and this is not relative to IQ. Some of the smartest people in the world are subject to this exact thing. This is not a function of IQ. If you are not, if you are smarter, this chemical reaction of knowledge with human personality does not go away. That's why smarter people should not be in charge. You should consult them. But the question of who should be in charge is who has worked out the nobility of the relationship between knowledge and love and has the guts to act on it. That's the person who should be in charge. And they should consult the people with 197 IQs and who have massive educations. It'd be great if we could get one of those people that did all of it, but, you know. You should pray, right? There, when we get knowledge, we realize that it's power, and it has an intoxicating effect on us. We think differently. We think, we think more of ourselves. We think we're qualified to make decisions that we're not make, making, but really we're in an altered state of consciousness, okay? I don't know about you, but when I went to college, in the middle of our campus, we had this big fountain, right? Big water fountain. And um, on really hot nights, like really early in the fall or really late in the spring, there were some people who, through their expansive knowledge, thought it would be a really smart idea to take off most of their clothes and to get in the fountain about 2 a.m. because then they'd feel a lot better because water is cool, right? But for some reason, the only people whose knowledge created that wonderful proposition were people that were wasted drunk. I mean, you just didn't get sober people at 3 p.m. saying, you know what, I think I'm going to strip down my underwear. I'm going to get in that fountain because it is hot and that water is probably cool. No, they were like, no, that, that, that fountain is filthy. It's usually covered with algae and who knows who's been in it. Were you, you know, it's, it's, I have a shower. There's air conditioning. Like, there's certain things when, we are in, when you're intoxicated sound perfectly reasonable. And they are, right? If you're hot and you get in water, will you be cooler? Yes. Is it reasonable? Yes. Is it based on knowledge? Yes. Is it stupid? Yes. Why? Because in an intoxicated mode, our knowledge gets narrowed, and we, we don't see broadly enough. And that's partly because of the insulating effect of knowledge, that when we think we know something, we, we think it's mentally squared away, and we don't want to be open to more. We don't want to listen. Why do you think nobody listens to anybody? It's no fun. It's, you want to get stuff squared away. You want to feel like you're moving based on things you know, and you don't want to listen more broadly, right? And so there's a narrowing effect. People think that it's religious people who are intellectually narrow. Religious people are intellectually narrow because human beings are intellectually narrow. We're all intellectually narrow. Everybody wants to learn something that they can actually act on, and they don't want the thing that they just learned to constantly be open to reappraisal because you can't act on anything, and you have to admit everything you've done on the basis of that thing is totally wrong. Every human being wants to square away knowledge. Your average atheist is just as narrow-minded as your average religious person. Your average Republican is just as narrow-minded as your average Democrat. Your, 
Your average Madisonian is just as narrow-minded as your average Atlantean. Your average European is just as narrow-minded as as your average Arabian. Human beings are narrow-minded because of the nature of knowledge and how knowledge interacts with the human person. It is not relative to anything. It is relative to whether or not you're a human being and you think you know something. Knowledge always has an intoxicating effect and an insulating effect. And if we don't, if we don't treat that, it will have its way with us. And the gospel is God's prescribed treatment. It is how Jesus, crucified and risen, rolls back the stultifying, stupefying, ignorance-making effects of sin when it takes something good like knowledge, even knowledge as good as the knowledge of God, and pulls it into our minds and infects it and creates the kind of chaos and anarchy that hurts everybody. Knowledge, and you, and you see this in the next three chapters. In chapter 8, it's when knowledge intoxicates and insulates you that way, you're gonna, what you're going to do is you're going to make selfish decisions that are going to hurt other Christians, right? That was the point in this chapter. In the next chapter, it's going to be you're going to make selfish decisions that are going to hurt non-Christians. You're going to make it harder for non-Christians to come to Jesus. And in chapter, end of chapter 9 and then chapter 10, it's going to say, you know what you're also going to do? You're going to make decisions that are going to destroy you. You're going to destroy the conscience of Christians, you're going to destroy the conscience of non-Christians, and you're going to destroy your own conscience. Unless the knowledge that you have and the freedom that it creates has a stabilizing effect to it that comes from love, and namely, loving God. In the most concrete form of knowledge we have about God, Jesus. Oh, that was well cued. So let's go on to the second one here then. It's right back. That is that love makes knowledge wise. One of the things it says in verse 2 is, if you think you know something, you don't know it yet like you ought to know it. Right? Look at, ver- look at verses 8, uh, the next verses here. It says this. So, so why does love in relationship to knowledge matter? Am I creating this? No, okay. Um, But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. And then he affirms the knowledge again. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, nor better if we do. Right? He's saying what you think you know spiritually, you do know. But that's not the question. Be careful, however, that your exercise— if we were in an inductive Bible study, we'd probably circle that word or something. Of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weaker brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. So you see how that works? So what he's saying is, is he's saying, if you take your knowledge and you allow it to intoxicate you and isolate you, your knowledge and how you make a decision is going to be put together with your own selfish desires. Your knowledge is going to be an end. Not, knowledge and freedom are always an end of something that starts in something else. What do you do with freedom? What do you do with knowledge? You're always doing it towards some end. It's because you've made a moral or spiritual or personal decision about what this stuff is for, right? 
Why do we use medicine to heal people? Why do we do that? Who thought we all the scientists spent all this time trying to heal people? Why do we do that? Why do we do that? See, every, all of us just without even thinking about it, just assume healing people is good, right? That has nothing to do with the science itself, does it? Now, why do we waste all our time trying to find ways to heal people? All that brain power could be used for making better iPhones that where the battery lasts longer. We could have iPhones with batteries that last seventy-five hours, one charge. We're wasting all this time saving people who are sick, right? The reason is, is that without even really arguing for it, we all believe that helping people physically through medicine is fundamentally morally good. Science can never teach us that. Science can only be descriptive. It can never be prescriptive. It can only tell us what it is. It can't tell us what we should do, right? We have to make those decisions, and those can't come from science. Science can only tell you, if you do this, this will happen. It can't tell you, you should do this so that this will happen. Those, those decisions are made on other principles, moral principles, spiritual principles, whatever you want. And people can even—scientists sometimes try to tell you that by saying, this is why your mind works that way. That's still just pre- descriptive. It's not prescriptive. This is why people normally make those moral decisions. That has no, no description on, on the standing of those moral—those choices, right? Because you can tell—you can say—tell us why a criminal makes a decision, but we're not going to say torturing babies okay just because we know how that guy's brain works, Right? It always comes from what you, what you do with freedom, what you do with knowledge comes from some belief. If, if you're being unconscious about it, you're just saying, oh, I have this knowledge, I'm going to do this. What that means is you haven't been reflective enough, and that means all you're doing is serving your selfishness. The principle you're working from is the selfish principle. It's the whatever you want principle. I've got this freedom. I've got this knowledge. I want stuff. Therefore, I'll do this. So in this case, it's— Man, have you had the filet mignon at the temple of Zeus? It is good. Most fresh meat in Greek marketplaces had been sacrificed before idols. Most big feasts, like big parties, you know where they had them? They didn't have them at, like, party places. They had them in the pagan temple. If you wanted to go to a party, you were going to a pagan temple. Should you go? Of course you want to go to a party. Who doesn't want to go to a party? Of course you want to eat meat. Meat was a luxury. Of course they wanted to go. And if somebody's putting on a thing where there's free meat— I mean, I can't think of anything better than that, hardly. <laughs> Unless you get like a big nap afterwards, you know? So of course they wanted to go. So he's like, well, I'm free to go. And idols nothing, right? I want to eat meat. So conclusion, I'm going to go to the temple and eat meat. You see, what Paul is saying is, see, the freedom and knowledge thing, you have that right. But you see, the inner principle that directs how it's used isn't love. It's selfishness. It's pride. And when knowledge self-confirms that and puffs you up, and then you use your knowledge and freedom to live out whatever that pride or selfishness wants, what you get is a really bad outcome. You're not—and you're destroying the very thing Christ came to create, and you're using the knowledge that Christ is everything to destroy the reality that Christ is everything for that guy. And the great irony is, therefore, your knowledge is creating destructive ignorance. Think about that. That's the irony. What he's saying is, the fact that you know something is producing the opposite effect in somebody else. It's persuading them inadvertently that the opposite of what's true is true. What if I don't talk if that won't start again? Is it me? 
Okay. Um, we can just turn off the air conditioning then. I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, so, so, okay, so here's, here's what we gotta go, where we got to go with this, and i got to conclude here. Um, so how do we—what what do we use? What do we do with that? Well, the first is you start with just the love of God. Right? Remember that, that verse in verse 3? Um, not, uh, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, right? He who thinks he knows something doesn't know as he, as he ought to know. And then it says, um, but he who knows God, or he who loves God, knows, loves, loves God is known by God, right? He loves God is known by God. And so what he's saying is this. He says, listen, first of all, he's implicitly saying, you know, actually being known by God is better than knowing about God. If you could only pick one, you ought to pick being known by God. And that really comes from loving God. And that has to be first, because the minute you love God, you're going to care about Christ's principles. And the minute you do that, Christ is going to direct you towards the well-being of your neighbor. And so you see, the knowledge and freedom isn't going to change. What's going to change? The inner principle is going to change. Why you do what you do with your freedom and your knowledge is going to fundamentally change when you take out what's good for me, and you put that here, and you pick up what, is, what, is, what did Jesus die and rise from? What did he attack sin, death, and hell for? right? And you put that in, what's the answer? His own glory for your good and for the good of your neighbor, for the good of that guy, the, the dumb guy who doesn't realize that if you eat in a pagan temple, that doesn't mean you're worshiping, worshiping the pagan god. The weak person, the novice, the person who um, isn't making enough progress, the person who isn't the brightest guy, that isn't the sharpest knife in the drawer, isn't the best tool in the shed, isn't the whoa, right? That's the person who he's saying, that guy's the priority. Because if you don't realize that, what, what does he say? You see, in two places he says, you need to think about that. The weaker brother, and he says, and then he puts in this, for whom Christ died. Now, why is that there? Why use extra ink? For, because you're supposed to see this guy as fundamentally connected with this guy. That when you don't care about this guy— you don't care about what this guy cares about, right? And then the next verse, when you sin against your brother in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. You see, the first step is loving God. But there's, this, there's another thing that, that is really important that has to be made explicit, and that is that three or four times in this passage, Paul specifically and intentionally uses the word conscience. Now, I don't have 30 minutes to talk about this, but— um, politically, Christian and religious people have often been called people of conscience. And there have been laws protecting the right to conscience. And part of the reason for that is, is that within the Christian tradition and within biblical teaching, one of the most sacred things about a human being is their conscience. It is the, it is the moral center. It is in some ways the spiritual center. It is the place where the best of the redeemed nature— integrates and interacts with the will and the emotions based on what we think we know. It is, it is a, a place in which we have the capacity to be the most like God, in that we have the, the ability, if it's calibrated right, to feel right, to think right, so, so much so that when you get to Romans 14, let me look at this. Romans 14, Paul actually says, also in relationship to eating um, food sacrificed to idols, that to, to not obey your conscience, even if your conscience is wrong, is categorically sin. Think about that. Think about what he says. So whether you believe, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God, meaning that you can have difference of opinion, right? 
And then he goes on to say this, Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he ever proves, but the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats. Why? Because his eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. He's talking about the same thing. He's talking about conscience. He's saying, even if you don't feel right about something, but theologically somebody makes an argument that says it's okay, but you don't feel right about it. You think it might be wrong. You think God may disapprove that. You cannot go against that because of the sacredness of conscience. That's why Martin Luther said, when all of the church said to him, Luther, you need to recant, dude. You are wrong. You're wrong. He said, I can't. And the reason he gave for why he can't, he said, because to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Why? Because to break your own conscience is to invite damnation. That's why. Your conscience is the thing that God uses and works through to keep pulling you away from your sinful nature. It's the thing that, that awakens not giving into the flesh and not walking away from God. It's, it's, the, it's the faculty inside you that works for your salvation and works against your apostasy. To break your conscience is to confirm your damnation. And, that, and therefore, the life and well-being of your conscience is so enormously sacred that nothing can be done against it, even if, you, and on some level, you know the thing is okay to do, and your conscience says don't do it, you must obey your conscience. Why? Because you cannot afford for that thing to break. Even if it's wrong, you can work to recalibrate it, but until that sense of conscience changes, and you, you feel right about it, you know it's right, and you can step forward in the will with confidence that you're doing what God wants you to do, you can't go against it because it is so important. It is the place in which people are saved and damned inside their being. And therefore, if you love God and are therefore called to love your neighbor, the number one and first command of love is do no harm to anyone's conscience and do all you can to help them calibrate it well and beautifully and honorably in relationship to the gospel. It is not their physical body. It is not anything else than the first command of loving God and loving your neighbor is to do no harm to conscience. It is the most sacred thing and the thing we must protect in ourselves and in others and how we act. And therefore, he says, if you love God and if you love Jesus and if you understand this, you would rather become a vegetarian who works at Oscar Mayer than eat meat again if you knew you were going to damage the conscience of another person. It's that sacred. Which means that this is what, for those of you who are like engineers or you like decision trees, you're in management or something, this is, this is what um, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 ends up teaching for how we make decisions about our freedom as Christians. First is, does the Bible say you can't do it, right? If it says no— just, I mean, the few things the Bible says, don't do these. If it says no, then you shouldn't do it. Square on that one? Okay, good. Let's move on. Second is, does your conscience allow it? If the answer is no, it doesn't matter. You don't do it. Because your conscience is the seat of the actual functioning of your salvation or damnation. You cannot break that thing. Okay? And then thirdly, you can ask these questions in relationship to love. How do you combine love with freedom and knowledge? In chapter 8, it's what effect will it have on other Christians, particularly their conscience? In chapter 9, it's what effect will this have on non-Christians, particularly their conscience in relationship to Jesus? And then in chapter 3, what effect will this have on my spiritual health? That is, the searing or the right calibration of your own conscience. 
Now, once you see that, you should be terrified. Right? The natural emotional reaction to that being what we do with our freedom and knowledge ought to be terrifying because you'll look at that and you'll just be like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be a doormat. You know, like I'm, I'm going to spend my whole life sacrificing and living for others and it, I, I can't help you with that. The answer is yes, you are. Yes, you are. Your, whole, your life is going to be um, conscience of the consciences of others. Yes. And that's why the Christian faith should never be attempted without Christ. You should never attempt to follow Jesus without Jesus. Okay? It's important. And, and that's why these sorts of sermons have to end with Jesus. Um, because aren't you glad that Jesus, the one who had perfect knowledge of you, did not use his knowledge and freedom based on a selfish internal principle. But the internal principle that he used because his, con- his conscience has from eternity past been perfectly calibrated to the good. He took the will of the Father and he used his freedom to invade earth and to destroy sin, hell, and death and to bring all his cosmic neighbors in an invitation to himself so that you could know him, you could be transformed from the inside out, your conscience could be reawakened and re-enlivened, your heart of stone could be taken out and a heart of flesh could be put in, you could be unintoxicated by knowledge, and you could be uninsulated because your heart will be turned towards God and your neighbors. And you can not only have back your life, you can have back your soul, you can have back a conscience— which is one of the greatest gifts anybody can have, and you can have back knowledge the way it was meant to be. Affirmed as good, and yet warned of its intoxicating and insulating impulses, and therefore combined with the love of God, which points us to Christ and our neighbors, so that knowledge will not destroy us. And we can have within us the union of knowledge and of love that will build our own conscience It will honor the consciences of others and will glorify Jesus in a way that will bring this lifestyle into a place that it produces an enormous amount of joy, not just for you, but for everybody. Let's pray. Father, um, we pray that you would help us to be a people who see conscience as sacred as it is, to recognize that if we understand